Threatments, Battle Scars by Onyx and Elm. Chapter 25. December 19th, 1998. Diary. Is there a fucking spell to make sense of things? Draco. December 24th, 1998. She spends days planning it, puts in the same amount of devoted effort as she would a term essay in first or second year, except it's almost harder because she can't expect an outstanding. She can pour as much concentration and careful consideration into this as possible and still not be able to depend on an outcome. Can't even be sure he'll let her finish her sentence. It's Christmas Eve, though. She can't wait any longer. It has to be tonight. She stands in front of her full poster for a good twenty minutes, staring at what must be three quarters of her wardrobe strewn out across the bed. She doesn't have Ginny or Parvati here to consult, She's the only seventh year who chose to stay. And warding off that nagging part of her brain that keeps insisting this is utterly ridiculous proves to be quite an undertaking. Eventually, she settles on a pale blue chenille jumper, but the forest green piece she'd had in mind seemed too pretentious. She pulls it down over a pair of simple jeans, wraps a white silk scarf around her neck and tugs on her boots. It's only as she struggles to magically pin her hair beneath the knit cap, she realises she never did this for Ron. Certainly she'd put a great deal of effort into her reveal at the Yule Ball, but it hadn't been just that, a reveal. Her chosen moment to display herself was more than just the mousy know-it-all, and it had been for everyone, and for herself. This, though, she's never done this with one person solely in mind. It's oddly exhilarating, and equally terrifying. Every time she thinks she's finally comfortable with how she looks, something flips like a switch and she decides she looks absurd. And it eventually becomes so frustrating that she smacks her hand against the mirror, snatches her bag off the foot of her bed and practically throws herself down the stairs from the dormitory. She's timed everything meticulously. She cannot afford to waste precious minutes fussing over meaningless details. But the nerves really start to settle in as she walks the deserted halls, decked with holly, just as the carol suggested. She has no gauge for Malfoy's reaction, and she spent the last several days working herself into a frenzy, thinking of all the possibilities. Her resolve is firm, though. She's going to go through with it, even if her knees wobble the whole way. And they do. By the time she reaches the dungeons, reaches the spot Harry and Ron once told her hid the entrance to the Slytherin common room, she's pretty sure the tremors are visible. Even so, she adjusts the pendant under the scarf and takes out her wand, performs three magical taps on the wall, a loud knock. Idly, she waits. She wonders if anyone's ever knocked for the Slytherin house. She pulls the pendant out from under her scarf and toys with its sharp edges between her thumb and forefinger. And then, all too quickly, a confused and suspicious Theodore knot materialises a few inches in front of her, like he steps through the wall. She jumps back, catches her breath. Granger? His dark brows arch up like small mountains. Um, hi, she manages at last, collecting herself. Hello. Did you just knock? He draws, and her earlier thoughts are confirmed. Yes, I did. I... She thumbs the hem of her sweater. I was hoping to speak to Draco. A thin seam of panic starts to widen. 
She hadn't really accounted for not being the gatekeeper. She had been too distracted by her relief that Parkinson was going home for the holidays, and she can't be sure he won't just scoff at her and slam the door, or a wall in her face. What for? asks Not, and she pulls herself out of her thoughts. Indignation is certainly not the best way to go into this moment, but all habits die hard. That isn't really any of your business, is it? Not's eyes tighten. He adjusts the collar of his sweater as he considers her. Actually, it is, Granger, as I've explained to you countless times at this point. But I'm bored of it, so I'm not going to explain it again. And then, to her utter disbelief, he steps back, disappears, and moments later Draco materialises in his place. He's all in black, a black cable-knit jumper, black trousers. It's stark against his pale skin, his platinum hair. But for the first time in a long time, he looks rested. The deep, defined rings of purple beneath his eyes she's grown so used to seeing have diminished some. And his eyes themselves have snapped instantly to her neck, to where her fingers still play nervously with the pendant. The sentence she's so carefully rehearsed evaporates in her head. Granger, he acknowledges, and she can't discern anything from his tone. It's Christmas Eve is all she can think to say. Well-spotted. She clears her throat, tries to reorganise her thoughts, tries to remember why she's even here. It's... well, it's Christmas Eve, she says again, and I... I wondered if you had any plans. Her heels knock together, and she itches the back of her ankle with the toe of her boot. Plans. He echoes the word like it's foreign. Yes, are you busy this evening? All of her phrasing feels childish. She can't remember anything she planned to say or how she planned to say it. Why? He shows his fist's small flicker of emotion, quirking a thin eyebrow. And she breathes out slowly through her mouth. I'd like to go on a date with you. There's a long, painful silence. Her eyes flit over him, trying to avoid his penetrating stare at all costs. Uh, a date? She hates when he repeats her. Yes, she says, folds her arms over her chest, forcing her gaze to meet his. The other brow quirks now, and he adjusts his posture, leaning back languidly against the wall. You realise, Granger, that the word date tends to have romantic connotations. Her heart pounds. She's almost certain this is his way of rejecting her. Yes, she says anyway. Which is why it's... appropriate. And finally, finally she sees emotion in his eyes. Sees the faintest glimmer of surprise. But then, less than a second later, he's sinking back through the wall. Her chest throbs, painfully like she's been struck with a mallet. She glances down at her feet, feels suddenly idiotic in her sweater, tugging at its hem as she turns to walk away. The logical part of her brain had, of course, accounted for this possibility, but the emotional part had not. She lets out a shaky breath, starts to walk fast, wants to run, run away and hide. Except there's another pair of footsteps echoing hers, catching up and she whips around to see Draco closing their distance as he tugs on a long black peacoat, a pair of gloves in hand. Her pulse stutters, stumbles and trips over itself, 
I assume we're going someplace cold, judging from you. His eyes give her a sweeping once over, hesitating on her shocked face. Lead the way, Granger. They apparate from Hogsmeade, hand in hand, and even though the fabric of their gloves, the contacts and shivers of her arms. When they arrive, appearing in a dark, snow-dusted alley, he lets go immediately, puffs out a steamy breath, turning a small circle as he's tried to figure out where they are. She interjects herself with courage and reaches for his hand again, squeezing onto it tight. Doesn't want to see his reaction. Isn't that brave, not yet, before pulling him along after her out of the alley. Soon enough, they're weaving through crowds of people along sidewalks. She's taken him to London. His fingers flex against hers in her hand, almost nervously. Are we going to Diagon Alley? She squeezes again, glancing sideways at him at last. No. And the relief in his eyes is clear as day. She thought about taking him there, about a proper wizarding date, but then she'd considered that most members of the wizarding society weren't likely to treat him with a great deal of kindness. And this was meant to be an escape, for both of them. Seeing his eyes now makes her doubly glad she planned things the way she did. Where, then? he asks. Trafalgar Square. There's a Christmas market there. She analyses his reaction carefully as they walk, seeing the slight hesitation, the uncertainty. A muggle Christmas market, he murmurs. Yes. They're only a block away, and neither says another word until they've stepped around the corner and into the bright and colourfully lit square. Its centrepiece a massive tree beside the fountain, glowing like a beacon. Canopies of Christmas lights hang from above like stars, and little tents that look like log cabins are set up in rows, filled with sweets and gifts and wonders. It's very crowded, couples and families with small children milling about in all directions, all in high spirits. Is this a test? asked Draco quietly, staring straight ahead when she glances sideways at him. What? she almost laughs. A test, he repeats, deadpan. Are you testing me? She's silent for a long moment, then she scoffs. Yes, this is a test. I wanted to see if you'd go on a massive muggle-killing spree. She releases his hand and gestures widely in front of them. Have at it. Draco raises an eyebrow at her, huffs, and she laughs again, shaking her head. You're ridiculous, you know, utterly ridiculous. No, this is not a test. I wanted to take you somewhere we wouldn't be bothered, somewhere pretty and Christmassy. I bought you because I thought you'd like it. And she's pleased with herself for having put it so simply. Even more pleased when his brow smooths out and she feels him take her hand again. Sarcasm is the lowest form of wit, Granger. They spend hours there. She takes him first to a small hot chocolate stand, rolling her eyes as he gripes about having to wait in line. There are lines at Honeydukes, at the Three Broomsticks. You have to wait in the Wizarding World too, she counters, turning to order as they reach the front. Yes, but their hot chocolate is hand-stirred and melted down by elves, and it's served in a silver flagon, not some flimsy paper. She shoves the flimsy paper cup in question into his hand, effectively silencing him. This is Swiss hot chocolate, she says, guiding them away from the line, 
Don't say another word before you try it. Draco narrows his eyes, looking down into the cup suspiciously. He removes one glove with his teeth, an unexpectedly distracting action, and then dips his pinky finger into the whipped cream, cautiously dotting it on his tongue. Oh, yes, certainly check for poison, she snorts, raising her own cup to her lips, and finally he follows suit, taking a measured sip. It's immensely gratifying to watch his eyes widen, to watch him instantly tip his cup back for more and then burn his tongue. She doesn't say, I told you so, doesn't say anything, just quirks one brow and smiles triumphantly before turning and leading him off to the next tent. They smell scented candles and study the craftsmanship of unique Christmas decorations. Well, she studies. He critiques. He's inordinately confused and enamoured by wind-up toys, having had all his toys charmed as a child. She catches him playing special attention to a small mechanical carousel. You like it? It's nonsensical, he says, too loudly and right in front of the shopkeeper but his eyes are glued to it as he watches it spin, watches the little gears turn as he plays a music box from Silent Night. You like it, she says again, no longer a question. Draco huffs and straightens his shoulders, striding away from what's left of his pride, and she buys it while his back is turned, slipping it into her bag. We'll have to go to Diagon Alley, you know, he says as they pursue the display of gingerbread houses, part of a competition. A small flutter of uncertainty awakens inside her. Is he really that uncomfortable around muggles? But then he says, To go to Gringotts, I have no muggle money, and I want another one of those flimsy hot chocolates, and he will not pay for anything else. The urge to kiss him is suddenly almost overwhelming. She turns away to hide her wide smile, and she hooks her arm right through his, and spins them around, back towards the hot chocolate stand. I asked you on the date. Surely you have some respect for tradition. I'm paying tonight. Tradition, he splutters. If you've any respect for tradition, then the man, being me, unless it's something you haven't told me, Granger, would be paying for everything. But you blindsided me. How wonderfully sexist. Two hot chocolates, please. He continues to argue with her, even as he eagerly takes the offered cup and they sit on the edge of the fountain, sort of absent-mindedly people-watching as they drink. "'Your thoughts?' she asks, a little afraid to know the answer, as she gestures to the market as a whole. Draco sips deeply from his cup, unknowingly painting a white whipped cream moustache above his lip. "'Crowded and bizarre, and yet not entirely unpleasant.' He turns to face her, flushing that sideways half-smile she can't get out of her head at night. And this flimsy hot chocolate is... She kisses him. Intends to kiss him quickly, to clean the whipped cream from his lip. But now he tastes of sugar and chocolate, and always that faint tinge of peppermint, and she finds she can't stop. She turns more fully to face him, the cold of the skin of his neck leeching through the wall of her gloves as she pulls him closer. She hadn't realised how much she's missed this hadn't realised how impossibly hungry she's been since that night in the hospital wing. And if she has any ability to read body language, he seems to feel the same. His hand finds her thigh, dragging her closer, hot chocolate forgotten somewhere as his other hand fists in her hair. Someone whistles at them. Draco breaks away instantly, 
cussing under his breath, and she laughs as she feels him reach for his wand. She kisses him again until he forgets to care. Later, he asks about the possibility of a third hot chocolate, but instead she takes him to dinner, to one of her favourite restaurants from childhood, where she and her parents would go after the theatre. She thought about not going there, thought it might be too hard, but then she'd consider the possibility of making new happy memories there, and it had won out. They talked about their childhoods, and talked about their favourite things and their least favourite things, and the things they've done, everything they should have known about one another years ago, had they not been so preoccupied with hating one another. She becomes intimately acquainted with Draco's sweet tooth, hiding another smile at his excitement over the mince pies for dessert. He loves Quidditch, and she can't stand it. She can cook a four-course meal, and he doesn't know what a colander is. He's mastered every potion in Hogwarts curriculum, and so is she. She's afraid of snakes, and so is he. They have nothing and everything in common. Throughout the meal, she catches his eyes flitting to the pendant around her neck over and over again. What does this mean? he asks at last, spoon playing with the melting pistachio ice cream they're sharing. He gestures with his free hand between the two of them. This. She leans on her palm, and one of the only things she's actually prepared to say this evening, planned and wanted to say, crosses her lips. It means I want to grow up, and start going after what's good for me. Draco lets the spoon sink into the ice cream, sits back, eyeing her pensively. I'm not good for you. She plays with the pendant, not taking her eyes off him. Actually, I think you are. He breathes out audibly, and she continues before she loses her nerve. I'm stubborn and selfish, and I've been too prideful to admit it, but I think I've needed you for a long time. His eyes darken, turning grey like steel. His foot glides up the side of her ankle under the table. She gets the check. Chapter 26 December 25th, 1998 It's half past one in the morning, and she finds herself making no attempts towards the Gryffindor Tower as they sneak back into the castle. And he makes no attempt to let go of her hand. But he doesn't lead her towards the dungeons, either, and she's admittedly a little disappointed. Has always been curious about the Slytherin common room. Not will be there, he says when she mentioned this, pulling her along after him through several dark corridors. Excitement bubbles in her chest. Being Gryffindor's resident know-it-all, and therefore by extension its resident prude, she rarely gets to feel the exhilaration of sneaking around and doing what she shouldn't. And this, tiptoeing hand in hand with Draco Malfoy through the castle in the middle of the night, <laughs> desperately seeking out a place to be alone, is the epitome of that. Her cheeks ache from smiling, her face flushed with thoughts of dark possibilities she'd been brewing in his eyes at dinner. She's so tired of relying on self-control. Now she only wants to rely on freeform. Soon enough, Draco is dragging her up and to an all-familiar spiral staircase, both of them out of breath. You can't be serious, she gasps out stifling a laugh as they come to a stop at the top before the door. Alohomora, he whispers, then yanks open the heavy latch and pulls her inside by the wrist. The divination classroom! She spins in a slow circle, surveying the dark, deserted room 
as he turns to lock the door behind them. Needed somewhere with pillows, he answers, and with the flick of his wand he lights every candle in the room, illuminating the floor of pillows in question in front of the divination tables. She quirks a brow at him. I'm not certain Trelawney goes home for the holidays. What if she's in the castle somewhere? Draco shucks his coat, stalks towards her. Then she'll have seen this coming and made herself scarce. Hermione laughs. She was never fond of me. Making this absolutely fucking poetic. And he takes hold of her with a familiarity she didn't know they were allowed to have yet. Like he's been doing it for years. Like he knows exactly where to touch her and how much pressure to apply. He kisses her once, a languid, melting kiss, before shoving her off her feet and onto the heap of floor cushions, follows her down. She laughs again, tossing away her bag as she crawls up over her, pushes, stares. The candlelight flickers over him like little threshing waves of gold, and she sort of realises that this was how she'd always pictured her first time, how she'd imagined it would feel. Probably not in the divination classroom, and never in her wildest dreams with Draco Malfoy, and for the second time, no less, but the candles, the pillows, the look in his eyes. It's the stuff of fantasies. She wonders if she should be afraid of waking up. He stays leaning over her for the longest time, just looking at her, seeming to drink in the situation, possibly the absurdity of it. They hadn't had much time for thinking at first time round. She reaches up and rushes her fingers over the cold swirl of his lips, feels him press back against them in a kiss. And then he's sitting back, tucking his sweater over his head, messing up his hair. She sits up, letting her coat fall from her shoulders as he starts unbuttoning his undershirt. Their eyes stay locked, watching each other as they undress. He's... sculpted. That's the best way she can describe it. Thin, but broad and tall, with expertly rounded shoulders and sharply carved edges, gleaming alabaster. But he's also scarred. It had been so dark in the hospital wing that she hadn't noticed at all. Now, though, with the candlelight and the moon's glow in the windows, it's only too easy. And she gasps, stops fumbling with the fastener on her jeans, and sits forward fast to press her hands against his chest. He seems confused for just a moment, then tenses a bit with the realisation. Ah, yeah, he murmurs with a forced casualness. Saint Potter made a right jigsaw out of me. She runs her fingers over the dark purple slashes. So long and thick they must have been gruesomely deep. Harry hadn't lied about what had happened that day, but he certainly hadn't described it as this. How do you know what a jigsaw is? She hears herself ask. Can't think of anything else to say. I'm not brainless, Granger. I do know what muggles are. All of us had to take muggle studies. She's relieved to hear the familiar snark in his tone. It's afraid she might cry otherwise. Instead, she presses her head to his chest, closing her eyes and letting out a slow, deep exhale. She needs him to know that she understands. Needs him to know they'll get through this. Both of them somehow, but she can't put it into words, so she just leans against him for a few endless minutes, sighs when his hand snakes up to bunch in her curls. Draco Malfoy will never be the sort to pet her head and whisper sweet nothings, 
but she finds she prefers the sharp pressure of his fingers tangled in, like he's holding on for dear life. Then she feels his free hand play with the lace strap of her bra, and the sadness in her chest sinks away as though down a drain, that forbidden burn bubbling up in its place. She pulls away, finds his gaze glued below her throat, and she's absurdly glad that he had enough wishful thinking earlier to dress accordingly. This is fun, he says, voice low as he traces the rough pads of his fingers along the pink lace edges of her bra. Goose flesh fans out across her skin. I'm not always boring, she murmurs, smiling a bit sheepishly when his sharp eyes flit up to meet hers. It's part of a set. He lets out a short huff, an expression almost like pain, but not quite, passing over his face. In the next instance, he shoves her back down onto the pillows. Move, Granger, you're in the way. And he starts yanking at the bottoms of her jeans, trying valiantly to get them off of her feet. She laughs. Never thought she'd be able to laugh so much in a situation like this. I feel comfortable like this. But then her jeans are off and everything becomes very serious very fast. He looks almost feral as he eyes the pink lace shorts completely see-through, completely revealing. Her face feels hot. Drago makes a noise she can't quite describe and then he scooped his hands beneath her thighs and yanked her towards him. She realises she shouldn't like how much he yanks her around, but she does. She does. And she can't think about that right now, because he's leaning in with all sorts of intentions she has in no way planned for. Malfoy, wait! He pauses with his head lowered between her knees, fingers leaving imprints on her thighs, clicks his tongue. I've told you that's not my name. And she's grateful for the burst of irritation. It calms her down. I will not be calling you that until you call me by my first name. His head knocks against her thigh and he groans in exasperation. So many fucking syllables. Oh, you poor thing. Her, my, oh, me, he sounds it out, voice vibrating against her skin. I mean, it takes ages to say it. Yes, well, Draco has that hard consonant that isn't any fun at all. There's a lot of effort. Are we really arguing about phonics right now? You started... Oh my god! She suppresses a shriek as he dives forward and closes his mouth over the lace from the front of her shorts. Her thighs jerk against his hands, jut inward instinctively, and an electric shock shoots up her spine. She fists her hands in his hair, desperately trying to yank him back as he soaks the fabric with an unexpectedly hot, wet tongue. Stop! Stop! she gasps, pulling so hard she's sure it hurts. He doesn't. Until a few seconds later, but only took his thumbs under the lace and yanked the shorts off entirely, sinking back between her legs impressively fast before she can lock them shut. No, wait! No! she babbles nervously reaching for him and kicking her feet out and squirming. He yanks hard on her thighs, spreads them so wide it stings, strains the muscles for a moment. She gasps and her eyes shoot to his and he's just staring at her, inches away from where she'd never expected or planned for any boy's face to be. Hermione, he says, raising his eyebrows and hearing her name for what must be the first time on his lips, silences her quite effectively. They stare at each other for a few tense seconds. 
Yes, she manages, and it comes out as a squeak. Shut the fuck up. And then he buries his face between her legs, tongue going on the instant offensive and laving its way across the nerve ending she didn't know she had. Her head falls back against the pillow like it's weighted down, and a moan rips forcefully from her throat, and all she can do is helplessly jerk and twitch against him as he kisses her there with the same fervour he used when he kissed her lips. Her mind makes a choice out of two options. She can either fall into a drug-like state and let her thoughts run to mush, or she can overanalyse everything. She decides the first option is too vulnerable, so she thinks, thinks and thinks and overthinks as Draco Malfoy goes down on her. Every time the late-night conversations in the girls' dormitory would shift in this direction, oral sex would come up, usually proposed by Parvati. From the way the experienced girls had talked about it, it had seemed like a lot of tongue-flicking and alphabet-tracing and general tentativeness. Romilda had said it was quite difficult to climax, as the boys performing it had rarely applied enough pressure. And now Hermione is thinking those girls did her a great disservice, because she is absolutely not prepared for the way Draco Malfoy performs oral sex. He is absurdly unshy. The tentative licks and snake-like tongue effects she'd expected are nowhere to be found. He's placing wide, wet, open-mouthed kisses on her like he's trying to clean every drop of ice cream from a bowl, with no regard for trying to find specific spots or trace letters. Instead, he sucks. Sucks, licks and sucks and closes his lips hard over her, again and again and again, and by God, the sounds. She's absolutely not prepared. Her thighs are shaking and her breath has abandoned her and she's desperately searching for that lack of sensation Romilda had mentioned, and instead finding an ever-building tsunami of quivering energy. Then her mind takes a horrible turn down a back alley, and she starts to wonder how she tastes, remembers Parvati talking about certain boys making her self-conscious, saying they didn't like the way she tasted. Does she taste bad? She can't imagine she tastes good. Bloody hell, she's been nervous and sweating and she hadn't expected his tongue to be anywhere near there. What if he's... Hermione, he says against her suddenly, and she's pulled out of the black alley and somehow thinking how inordinately pleased she is at the four syllables in her name. Yes, she croaks, when she realises it's a question. She forces her head up, unprepared for the sight of him looking up from between her legs, chin and lips wet glistening, her cheeks flame. When I said shut the fuck up, I meant that overly large brain of yours as well. I, I just, she splutters stupidly, breathlessly. What if I taste? He yanks on her thigh again, his way of silencing her. You taste, he starts, then makes her watch as he presses a wide sloppy lick against her, his eyes falling shut a groan tumbling from his open mouth. You taste like fucking opium. Hermione jerks against him, suppressing him with a shriek, even as she overthinks some more. Opium is bitter. Stop taking everything so literally, and being a fucking know-it-all for two seconds, please, he says, even as he pauses to suck on an extremely concentrated collection of nerves. I did a lot of opium. I fucking love opium. You don't know how much I love opium. 
She can't believe he's having a conversation with her as he's doing this. After every sentence, he stops and sucks and licks at her until she sees white spots, then continues. But the tossers in the Ministry's psychiatric division have decided that I don't deserve any more opium. Can you believe it? His tongue dips low, teases her entrance. She bucks up against him, whines, or at least that's what it sounds like. And I was very, very... He lets his tongue sink into her briefly, then pulls out when she moans. Very upset about that, as you can imagine. One of his hands releases its iron grip on her thigh and snakes around to where his mouth is, fingers toying with her like he knows exactly where all the sweet spots are. Now, though, another open mouth kiss. I don't think I could care less, because this... His finger slides inside of her. Her head flops back onto the pillows, toes curling against the cushion by his hips. You, he adds, a second finger, starts to pump them rhythmically as his tongue sets to work on that same collection of nerves. Are so much better. And then he adds a third finger, sucks hard and curls one of the digits up against the spot inside of her she was previously unaware of, and it's too much. She screams yanks away from his mouth and his grip and curls herself into the pillows, bucking against him and squirming as she rides out the waves of almost painful pleasure, hides herself from him, tucking her face into the cushions. She stays that way, gathered up in fetal position until her breathing slows and the shaking stops. Even then, can't bear to look at him. She feels the cushions against her, just, accommodating his weight as he crawls up over her feels his cold hand curve around her chin, pulling her face from the pillow and forcing her to look up at him. I thought you were a Gryffindor, he smirks. Then he licks his lips purposefully, licks the moisture off his chin, grin widening when her breath hitches. You, you are absolutely a Slytherin, she whispers, voice shaky, but she jolts when she finds his hands slide between her legs again. She reaches down to push at it. No, stop. No, I'm... It's too sensitive. And she realises she sounds like she's begging. Flushes. Does it look like I care? He growls, other hand dragging against her hip to flatten her on her back again. She hears the telltale clink of his belt buckle, sees a flash of purple fly to the side as he tosses away his trousers, the journal in the pocket thudding loudly against the floor. Her stomach grows pink suddenly, startling her, and then she hears his wand clatter somewhere off to the other side. You're a bastard, she murmurs feebly, even as her arms betray her, weaving around his neck, inviting him in, wanting him closer. His tongue flicks against her lips. He spreads her legs. I know. And then he sinks in deep. They lay in a tangle of velvet cushions, discarded clothes and sweat, both unable to sleep. Their position is not quite affectionate, and yet intimate all the same. She's never expected to cuddle with him, doesn't need to, doesn't care. This, lying facing one another with only their ankles tangled together, is more than enough. But the way his sweat-soaked hair slicks up from where her fingers twisted in it, and where the blissful ache, the heavy soreness between her legs... He huffs a laugh at one point, reaching out to tug on one of her curls and watching it bounce back. A happy Christmas, by the way. 
something warm throbbed in her chest. A happy Christmas, she echoes quietly. Doesn't tell him it's the best she's had in a while. Then she remembers. Oh, she says, unable to help the smile as she sits up suddenly. I almost forgot. He watches lazily from the pillows as she finds her bag, gaze searing across her nakedness and making her blush when she notices. She comes back quickly to lay beside him again, if only to hide most of her body against the cushions. And she pulls the wind-up carousel out of the bag, holds it out to him, suddenly a little self-conscious, uncertain. A happy Christmas. He laughs, loudly, unexpectedly, to the point where she's embarrassed and starts to pull away, thinking he's making fun of her. But then he takes hold of the toy in one hand and yanks her in for a kiss with the other. A moment later, he's on his feet, leaves her laying there, confused as he finds his jacket on the floor, absolutely unashamed of his nakedness. When he collapses back down next to her, he pulls the exact same carousel from his coat pocket. Happy Christmas, he says wryly, laughing as he hands it to her. I... what? She splutters, laughing too. How did you... I thought you didn't have any muggle money. I didn't. I stole it. Happy Christmas. And he kisses her before she can even start to argue. The Christmas morning feast is one of the best, or so she's always heard from Harry and Ron, a sort of gift to the few students who have no reason to go home for the holidays. But it's even better than she imagined, because she's sitting next to Draco Malfoy at the Slytherin table while he eats it, completely soaked in the afterglow of the night before with not enough students in the great hall around them to notice or care. She sneaks sideways glances at him as he drinks his tea sleepily. He drinks it black, strange now that she knows about his sweet tooth, but his plate is stocked full of sugary treats like candied gingerbread bonbons and almond cream tarts, so she supposes that makes up for it. They eat in pleasant, coexistent silence. He scribbles in his journal and she bites back on her curiosity. By then, the mail arrives, and he spits his tea all over it, curses and tries to mop the dark stains off the purple cover. He yanks the Daily Prophet up off the table, almost ripping it in his haste. Hermione sips her tea quietly. Bloody hell, he sighs at last, wiping a hand along his face, warping it into a grimace. He hands the Prophet to her dejectedly so she can see the front page. War hero and former Death Eater spotted on romantic Christmas excursion. Below it is a massive, moving photograph of the two of them kissing on the edge of the fountain in Trafalgar Square. Fucking Skeeter, Draco groans, angrily shoving a bourbon into his mouth. Probably fucking followed us the whole night. Yes, Hermione says quietly, setting the paper down. I paid her to. He chokes again on his tea. She just laces their hands together on the table, glancing sideways at his appalled face. I figured you deserved a grand gesture. 